0: Today's scripture reading is from Jeremiah 32, 16 and 17.
1: After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord saying, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. This is the living word of God for us today. Thanks, Susan you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and take them, please, and open them to the Old Testament, and we're going to go to the book of Jeremiah, and I want you to go to Jeremiah chapter 32. Rob and I have stepped out, as you noted last week, of our study in Colossians, and we will be out of it today and, 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 and next week and on through the, uh, the Easter season. And uh, we are stepping into, and we introduced it last week, it's a little mini-series, but it's under this, this theme of a greater story. And uh, I introduced to you, you know, what we call a greater story last week—creation, fall, redemption, recreation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring that back to us, and indeed, over the next few weeks, we're gonna be, we're gonna take two stories that are a part of this greater story. And uh, the reason, the reason we are camping on this—if I can just kind of boil it down to this—in every crisis, you all, whether it's you know the crisis, global crisis we're in, or just a personal crisis in life, which they always are coming and going. Our hope rests in the conviction that it's not just our story, but there's a greater story that is God's story in which He reigns and rules and will be and will bring to completion. So the first story is Jeremiah 32. Why Jeremiah 32? Well, you know, I was in in my own personal devotions. I'm reading, I'm in Jeremiah and have been for a little while now. Two weeks ago, I read Jeremiah 32, and I remember reading it then. This is pre-coronavirus, and I just went, "That's well, wow, that's a great word for a, for a people in in trouble." You know, to be reminded. And uh, I told the team earlier this week. I said, "I, th- I think I want to go to Jeremiah 32. It seems appropriate for us." So that's where we are. Let me let me set this story up and and, and begin in this way. Uh, 1987. Uh, George Strait. Some of you go, who, you know, young people, who's George Strait? Okay, you know, Hall of Fame, 60 number one hits, country music star, George Strait had a number one song that, that I literally read Jeremiah 32 and I thought of the George Strait song when I read it. Uh, this song, um, it, it's t- it tells a story like, like country songs do. And it tells a story about a man who's afraid that his woman is gonna walk out on him. But you know he does not want her to, to know that or he doesn't want his friends to know that he is, he is madly in love with her. And when she walks out, it's gonna kill him. But he doesn't want people to know that. And so the song goes along these lines. It begins, if you leave me... I won't miss you and I won't ever take you back. And then he tells her, your memory won't ever haunt me because I don't love you. <laughs> you got to put all this to, to, to music, you know. But then the hook, and this is the one that is, it just has stayed with me. And he, in the hook tells what's really going on and that's when he sings these words. And if you'll buy that, I've got some oceanfront property in Arizona. From the front porch, you can see the sea. I've got some oceanfront property in Arizona. And if you'll buy that, I'll throw the golden gate in free. What in the world does that have to do with Jeremiah 32? Here's here's where my mind went. Only a supreme fool would buy oceanfront property in Arizona... In the same way that only a fool would believe in that song that that man wasn't blindly in love with that woman. In Jeremiah 32, you all, Jeremiah buys oceanfront property in Arizona. Here's what I mean. He he purchases a field that is absolutely worthless and he does it to show us as God's people, how to live in a day when for him, the world was literally falling apart. Now, I'm gonna give you the context of the story. It's, you know, it's, a long, it's 46, 44 verses. I'm not gonna cover them all, but I'm gonna hit three main points in the story that I think give us enough. What we're gonna read, uh, timeline, timeline. It's 587 you know, BC, the cross is way over here, 500, 600 years away. 587 BC is when the story's happening. Jerusalem is gonna be destroyed in 586. So we're within a year of Jerusalem falling. Think about redemptive history. Jerusalem's not just any city. This is where God chose to put his name. Uh, Jerusalem, for Jerusalem to fall is for God to fail. Uh, there, God's promises being worked out, Israel, a nation, a Messiah through it, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. 140 years earlier, the northern kingdom, Israel, wiped out by the Assyrians. And now 587 and 586 is going to fall. The southern kingdom, Judah, is going to be exiled. The city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and burned. And the land will no longer be the promised land for those people. Now the reason that this is happening is uh, from the moment the people came into the promised land, Jeremiah tells us they've been rebellious. That's his whole prophetic ministry. And so this is God's judgment, and the Babylonians are laying siege to the city, and the Babylonians, God's using the Babylonians to judge his people in their utter rebellion. Now, here's what I wanna say, and I wanna be so careful, please hear me on this. This is a historic story that happened to a particular people at a particular time in history for God's redemptive purposes. I am not implying that the coronavirus is God's judgment you know, on the world, y'all. That's, it's not, it's a virus. Um, Like all viruses, it's a disease, and it's part of a fallen creation, it's a part of fallen bodies. I want to be clear on that as we go through this story. Let's dive in. Jeremiah's going to tell us this story, and I'm taking three parts of it, and I'll repeat these. I'm taking uh, the purchase, then I'm going to look at the prayer, and I'm going to look at the promise. The purchase, then the prayer, and then the promise, okay? Here's the purchase. We're going to pick it up in verse six. You can follow along in your Bibles, Jeremiah. Chapter 32, verse six. Then, all right, Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle will come to you and say, buy my field that is at Anatote. For the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, buy my field that is in Anato, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anato from Hanamel, my cousin. I weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, weighed the money on the scales. I'm going to stop right there. He buys the land, and it's fascinating that he goes into such minute detail of the witnesses and the signatures and the people who saw all that he did. Honestly, y'all, it's like buying a home today, and it's the mortgage payments or the the loan, and you sign that stack. He did all of it. It was absolutely utterly over the top legal and binding now during a siege which Jerusalem you know if this was Jerusalem the, the armies of babylon had surrounded jerusalem and they're getting ready to it's getting ready to fall but they would they would open the gates and they would let people come in and out you know if people wanted to desert come on out if they wanted to negotiate they would do that so apparently this is a time when during the siege Uh, Jeremiah's cousin comes and has him buy this land, the right of redemption. This is the Mosaic law that the land for a Jew, you all, it it wasn't a piece of property. It was identity. And God said, the land's got to remain in the family that's given it. And if no one will take it, then you got to go to the next family member who will purchase it, the right of redemption. And that's exactly what Jeremiah is doing. Here's the problem. I want you to think about the context. The Babylonians are at the gates. We're within months of Jerusalem falling. The deed and all that Jeremiah signed, it's worthless. It's worthless. The Babylonians own it all. Jerusalem's about to fall and that's why I say, and this is what hit me in a weird way, Jeremiah just bought some oceanfront property in Arizona. But that's not God's view. And so the story on the purchase continues. I want you to look at verses 14 and 15. Verse 14, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time, because for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. I don't want you to miss this. He buys this worthless field, and yet God turns his eyes upward to say to Jeremiah, in the midst of your own story, you know, this is bad. The, the world's falling apart but in the midst of your own story, Jeremiah. There's a greater story, there's a greater story. And God calls his prophet to live, not in light of just his story, but in light of the greater story in which God says, look, this is bad, it's not how it ends. And then there's the prayer. So there's a purchase and then there's a prayer. I want you to look at verses 16 and 17. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, oh, This is exasperation. Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Cute, big phrase. Nothing, nothing, nothing is too hard for you. Now, Think about this prayer. It's like so many prayers in the Old Testament, New Testament, and and, and it's instructive for us, you all, that that when when the saints cried, and in crisis and other times, their first turn of prayer was, oh God, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And this is where we've been for seven days in our devotions and in our devotion today. God, you reign and rule. It's their first turn of look. God, you reign. And, rule. and then this amazing statement of faith. This is the ground upon, honestly, all our faith rests on this ground. Nothing is too hard for you. Now the prayer goes on. I'm not gonna unpack all the prayer, but simply summarize it in these two statements because from, uh, from 18 to 24, he, he recounts these two things in his prayer. God, you are faithful. You brought people into land flowing with milk and honey. And God's people are faithless. It's just this contrast in his prayer. He's like, God's faithfulness, the people's unfaithfulness. And then he ends his prayer on this, I just say it's kind of a wistful longing, and I'm gonna suggest even a wistful doubt. Just a, this measure of uncertainty. I want you to look at verse 25. He's still praying, he says, yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witness. I want other people to see this. Though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. I don't know about you, but when I'm I'm reading about the great men of faith and women of faith and characters of faith, I'm, I'm actually encouraged in some weird way. When, I, when, when, when we get to see their faith, yes, it's great, but it's riddled with uncertainty. It, it, I'm like, I, so's mine. I've, I've never done anything with pure faith. And even Jeremiah in this says, God, I, I've done what you said for me to do, yet you, made me, you had me buy this land, and it's worth nothing. Because the city's falling, the people are in exile. We don't even own the land anymore. I, I, wanna, I wanna remind us of something related to faith here. It's not, it's not the purity of our faith, it's not the 100% certainty of our faith, it's not, it's not having a, it, 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 it's, it's what our faith is in that matters. I'll say it this way. You can have a smidgen of faith, okay? But if you've got a just, I mean, a microscopic smidgen of faith, but it's in the character and power of God. Can I tell you what you get? You get all the character and power of God. You don't get a smidgen, you know, it's like, you got a little bit of faith, I give you a little. No, you get all the character and power of God just with that little bit of faith because it's the object of our faith. That matters. So we got on the purchase, the, the prayer, and, and here's where I want you to see the promise. Here's, the, here's where we hit pay dirt, so to speak, in the promise. It's a long section. It's verses 36 to 44. I'm not going to cover it all, but I'll summarize it, and we'll hit certain verses. I want you to begin here. Here's the promise, and we'll start with verse 27. God answers and says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh, is anything too hard for me? Let's say it again. He answers him and says, is anything too hard for me? And, and don't forget, has just said, nothing's too hard for you. But then he comes to God and says, nothing's too hard for you, God, but these circumstances and God answers him not by declaring who he is. Isn't it interesting? God answers answers Jeremiah's doubt with a question. And I really think this. It's it's um I think it's how God I think it's how God often answers our own doubts. He doesn't say, look, let me let me tell you this. I think God whispers a question to us in our own doubts. And can I say I think it's this question, is anything too hard for me? Like that's that's what he's asking. Is anything too hard for me? And and how we answer, you know, and it's what comes out of us is the difference between hope and despair. How we answer that question is anything too difficult for me? God asks. How he answers the difference between a, a, a confident expectation and this uh, wavering apprehension. And if I can, if I can cut to the quick, in, in light of the story itself and the whole of Scripture, when we go to the Scripture the Bible's you know, unequivocal response, is anything too difficult for God? No, never, nothing, that's what the Bible tells us, okay? Now, what life tells us, and this is, you know, this is life, if you're gonna look at, we look at our circumstances, we see what's happened to us and what's happened to some of you this week, and so what's happening to us in the coming, you know, what's going on, if you look at life, Life conspires to tell us, I think there may be something too difficult for God. I mean, that's the truth. Which doesn't it remind us why God says, Delight yourself in my word. You know, my word's a light for your path. It's, if you'll come to my word, you'll see what's true. And what's true is nothing, no, nothing is too hard for God. Well, I'm going to go to verses 30. Six to forty four, because this is the the heart of the promise. And I'm just going to say this because I'm not going to read these verses, but in the preceding verses, if you looked at twenty eight to thirty five, I, I want you to know this is basically what God says. God says to his people, uh, you have rejected me. You have turned your back on me. You have not followed my precepts from the day you entered the land. And it ends, by the way, right before, we, we're getting ready to read something. And right before it, God says, and you, have, you are sacrificing your children to Molech. And this is, almost turns your stomach, but this is what they were doing. They were sacrificing their children to a pagan god. I don't know about you, but that's almost like, I mean, I don't know if it gets worse than that for God's people to do that. And so you've got that sense of you have, reg- they, are, they are a mess. And then God says this, and I want you to follow along. Now, I'm gonna circle two, two words every time they occur in these verses. And if you have a pen or pencil, or if you mark your Bible, I wanna encourage you to consider doing that as well. So, you, you, are, you've been un, you are sacrificing your kids to a pagan God. Now watch what comes out of God's mouth after that. Verse 36. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, by pestilence. Behold, now I want you to circle these. I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger in my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make them an, with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart. And all my soul for thus says the Lord just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying it is a desolation without man or beast it is given into the hand of the Chaldeans fields shall be bought for money And deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judea, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev. Why? For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. I'm telling you, when we see the context of these words, it is... It's staggering. Everything God says he will do, okay, put yourself in Jeremiah's place. Everything God says he will do in where Jeremiah is, surrounded by Babylonians, knowing the city's about to fall, knowing the people are going into exile, knowing the city's gonna be burned, knowing the temple's gonna be tore down. Everything God says he will do looks impossible. That's the point. Jeremiah, you, you, uh, it's impossible. If you were counting, by the way, I want you to circle those and you can go back and count, 13 times. When we're studying our Bibles, we look for things like repetition. How about 13 times? I will, I will, I will, I will. Why does God keep saying he will? Because he's going to do what we could never do that only he can do. And by the way, the staggering part of this, if I may spend a little bit of time on it, I think can be summarized in this way. If you you the other thing that's repeated in this verse, and if you were in the room, I'd ask you, but there's another word that's repeated in these verses that's staggering. G-O-O-D. I want you to go back through it and look, how many times does it say good, 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 good that God does for his people? If we took all of those I wills and you boil them down, and you put them together and say, let's get a statement for what this is saying. Here's what it's saying. God says, you have despised and dishonored me from your birth. Therefore, I'm gonna do you good forever. And you go, "Eh, no, it's therefore I'm gonna, no, therefore I'm gonna do you good. With all my heart and soul. You talk about something impossible. Now we're talking about real impossibilities. Think about this. You want to talk about what's most impossible to our brains, to our hearts? Grace. Pure, unmerited grace. We deserve damnation. We deserve we deserve this judgment that the people, are, it's coming on the people. And God says, you have been so bad. I'm gonna be so good to you. And we go. How do those who despise and reject God become his sons and daughters? How does a people whose hearts are set on pagan gods and sacrifice their kids to pagan gods find themselves welcomed back home to God and lavished with good. There's so, many, there's so many I wills, we could identify a number of things. Let me give you three of the things these I wills do. Here's what God's gonna do to a, to a disobedient and uh, to a people who reject him. It says in this text, they turn their back on him. Here's what God does to people who turn their back on him. He brings us home. How about that? I'm gonna bring you home. I'm gonna bring you where you belong. I don't care how far your sin has taken you and my judgment has pushed you out. I'm bringing you home. He said, I'm gonna give you a new heart. So you got a heart problem. It's not just your behavior. You got a heart, you got an inward problem. And God says, I'm gonna replace the heart of stone. I'm gonna, heart of, I'm gonna give you a heart of I'm gonna give you a heart that will delight in loving me. He says, I'm going to guarantee that you are going to make it to the, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to guarantee your perseverance so that you won't stray fully and finally. No, I will get you home in the end and I will get you home forever. And then fourth, he says, I will restore and make all things right one day. You may say, Lord, he's talking to to the Jews in Jeremiah's time. Yes, he is. But you all, this is where we got to understand the greater story in this sense. He's speaking, he is speaking of the new covenant and the new covenant is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul will say, 2 Corinthians 1.20, and all God's promises are, yes, where? In Jesus. And so he's speaking, he's speaking the gospel here through Jeremiah. Which is why, and if I can take you there and I'm going to have you look at this, I, I took you to this greater story you can see there uh, this morning, creation, fall, redemption, recreation. You remember I said during, in the fall, I made this point in the fall that, there was, that God said, I'm going to send a man one day born of a woman. It was just a faint flicker. I'm going to send a man one day born of a woman who's going to crush the serpent's head. He's gonna, he's gonna die in doing so, but by this man, I will restore all that's gone wrong. And what was that little, that little flicker pointing to, right? We know this. It was pointing to the cross of Christ. Jeremiah lives in this day, somewhere in here, and the world is falling apart. Again, I said it earlier, I think that for Jerusalem to fall, is for God to fall. You know, there's a reason he's concerned. And God is lifting Jeremiah's eyes out of his, let's just do this, out of his little story that's happening right here, and saying, Jeremiah, there's a greater story, and this is what I'm gonna do. I'm not saying Jeremiah saw Jesus on the cross as clearly as we do, but he saw enough to know that God was gonna keep his promise. And not only that, Jeremiah actually saw beyond the cross because he saw to the recreation, and I said it last week, in the recreation, God's glory is most fully and more fully evident because of the cross of Christ. Than if there had never been a fall and his glory will radiate for all time forever and ever and ever because of the cross of Christ. God's judgment was pouring out. Can I say, you know, God's judgment was pouring out on them. But you all, what he's describing is the time when God's, Judgment will be poured out on Jesus. And when it's poured out on Jesus, there's not a drop of it left because Jesus satisfied the wrath of God for our rebellions and disobedience. Jesus was buried, separated from the Father Raised on the third day, and therefore, all who put their trust in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. God, there's no wrath to come to us because it all went to Jesus, and we're clothed in Christ righteousness. What I'm trying to get us to see, and again, stick with the diagram, I'm trying to get us to see, if I can do it this way, that Jeremiah, while living in his time and place, made choices in this time and place, not based on just this time and place, but he made his choices based upon the time and place to come. Does that make sense? You see what I'm saying? Jeremiah, God lifted Jeremiah's eyes to look to what God was doing in a greater story. And based on this, Jeremiah then made a choice to buy a field. That was worth less in his time. I say it this way Jeremiah chose to live in his time and day based on that time that will never end. So, what does all this have to do with us today? Okay. I'm gonna land the plane in the midst of the worst global pandemic in modern history. And I know that y'all, there, I know some of you have lost jobs this week. You're gonna lose jobs, income, Uh, the schools, and some of you students, you know, you got your college coming up and just everything's falling apart. (laughs) But it's not the end, it's part of our generation's story, yes. But there's a greater story. And so in our day, in this story we're in, you all, will we live in this story in light of a greater story or will we choose to live in light of this time that we're in? And I want to suggest that it has everything to do with what's happening in Jeremiah's story with us. And I'm going to offer two questions that I think bring it home to us. The first is simply this. You need to answer this. Is anything too hard for God? And can I encourage you when you answer it? I mean, you gotta look at your circumstances, absolutely. It's reality. But you also gotta look at the truth that God has revealed. And when you look at that, God says, there's there's nothing that God can't do. Even though it looks like and again, think of your, he's looking at this going, there's no way God can bring all these people back. There's no way that people are gonna worship God one day for, no, yes, there is. His name is Jesus. That's the first question. Is anything too hard for God? And the second question is this, will you buy the field? You gotta think about this. I'm asking you, and I think the scripture asks this, will you buy the field? What do you mean, will you buy the field? I mean this, I'll say it a couple different ways. Will you make choices in this crisis? And you know, this is a generational crisis. Will you make choices? Will we as a church make choices? Will we make make decisions as a family of faith and as your family and as, as you individually that are born of a deep and abiding conviction that yes, this story stinks right now, but there's a greater story. There's a greater story always. And it doesn't end in a pandemic, it ends in God's glory. It, go back to the chart for a moment. You see, wherever we are, and you know we're somewhere in here, please understand, we've got a story that's happening, yes, but will our eyes go to this story? Will our eyes embrace the greater story that God is doing? And this is where it's all going. This is where it ends. His glory in a redeemed people, in a renewed earth, and a renewed heaven, this, so I'm going I'm to make choices now based on a greater story. I'll say it another way. Will we make choices now that reflect our conviction that the life to come matters more than the life I'm in right now? Will our choices reflect that? Carl mentioned in our worship planning this week a quote he had heard from Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard recently passed away but he, he's, he's written to a generation and shaped a generation around spiritual formation spiritual growth um, he tells the story that he was two years old when his mom died his, obviously his father tells him this but he said that when his mom died he's two years old he's got a brother his mom's last words to his dad were these keep eternity before the children keep eternity before the children it's i think that i could say she was saying make sure the kids always know there's a greater story there's a greater story and they live their life in light of that greater story Dallas Willard certainly did so what might buying a field look like for us today? What do you mean, Lloyd, buy the field? Do you know what? I don't know what it means for you specifically, but the Holy Spirit does. See, that's, I, I can't tell you specifically what it means, but the Spirit will tell you if, you, if, we're, if we're aware and we're Spirit-dependent. But I can tell you, based on the story, let me give you at least two guardrails, because these two guardrails are going to mark whatever it looks like for you and I in these days to buy the field. Number one, it will cost you. I mean, this, you can't read Jeremiah, the whole book, and not know his, ministry, his life cost him dearly to live the way he did. Financially, his reputation, convenience, comfort, being misunderstood, being ridiculed maybe. I mean, Jeremiah was ridiculed his whole life because he was living for a greater story. That it didn't keep him from making those choices. I'm telling you, people who live for eternity don't make sense to people who are living just for this time. And secondly, and here's the other guardrail. I I, I really believe this. Out of this text, I believe this. It will mean sharing the gospel. It, it will cost you, and it will mean sharing the gospel. These are the two guardrails you know, of, of life, really, life of faith. Why do I say that? Because Jer- Jeremiah's purchase, as I described in the diagram, his purchase was pointing people to the greater story, which is Jesus. It, it, his, his purchase was a declaration of faith in the promises of God, and all God's promises become yes in Jesus. Jesus. Go back to the diagram one more time. I, I just want to show you one other thing. You see, there is a, there is a thin veil between this life and the life to come. And, and I want you to think about this. There are only two things, just two, that cross the veil, just two. The word of God, that lasts forever. And the souls of People, see, those are the only two things. <laughs> everything else, everything else gets left behind. You can it can't cross the veil. And so, honestly, the question for us, the opportunity for us, always, not just in crisis, is: is everything God has given me in my life right now? Am I using it? Am I stewarding it in such a way that souls are going to cross that veil into heaven? That the word of God in them, through me, is going to cross that veil into heaven? Or am I using all my stuff right now for me? I was 18 years old when I first heard C.T. Studd's quote that he's most famous for. You know, He's a missionary in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he said this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And I think that is what Jeremiah is saying to us. I'm gonna invite the worship team back up to join me. I'm gonna ask you, do not, please, don't close the computer, don't turn off the TV, because the message isn't over, if I could say that. it's not enough to, 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 to hear me say it. We talked about this in Colossians. God has ordained the means by which we teach and admonish one another, and one of those means is in our song. And so we're gonna sing together, and I, and I wanna say to you, in these next moments as we, as we stay in the message and song, you can kneel, you can close your eyes, you can stand, but put yourself in a position that the words to this song, because I think they're the words of the passage, move past any obstacles and reside deep, deep in our heart. For indeed, Jeremiah has said it. God has stated it in a question. The answer of the Bible that matters most is this, there is nothing our God can't do.
0: Just one touch I feel the presence of I believe for greater things, there's no power like the power of Jesus, let faith arise, then all agree, there's no power like the power of Jesus. I will believe for greater things, there's no power like the power of Jesus, let faith arise. Let all agree There's no power like the power of Jesus
1: It has been good to be together. You know, if you were here in the room, I'd invite you. If I was at Franklin, I would invite you to come up and and let us pray with you. I can't do that. But boy, I can tell you, call the church office and can we pray with you? I wanna remind you to do that. I wanna remind you to sign up for the 21 days of prayer. We've got 14 more to go. Also, every week, Rob and I remind us, we say, you know, we, we, we go outside these walls to a world that needs hope. And may I say this, this, you know, I know we're all, you know, we're home, but there's your fellowship group, there's people in your circle of influence, you will bump into people who need, who need to know that you're buying the field, because you're living for a greater story. Carry that message, share this message, live the, share the gospel in ways that cost something. This is the jet stream of God's will for us. I'm gonna send you out with Paul's words. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, ours, (laughs) and all generations forever and ever. Amen. God bless. We will see you next week.